This episode is part two of my conversation with Helgi Thomason. Enjoy. So you joined the New York City Ballet as a principal dancer. You've already had this great career with Joffrey and Harkness, and you enter this new season of a 15-year career as a city ballet principal. And from the get-go, you were interested with important roles in the repertory. And what was your process of acclimating to the pace and style of New York City Ballet? And how did it compare with your previous experiences with Joffrey and Harkness? Well, it was different from, from jo- Joffrey and Harkness, obviously, <clears throat> but don't forget, I had started at the school. So I was very much familiar with, you know, the speed and the articulation and all that. So it wasn't uh, uh, unknown to me. I, w- I picked up very quickly. And in a typical balancing way, he would throw a lot of ballets at you and see what suited you and how you would sink or swim. And that was his phrase, you know. So I learned a lot of repertory, like a lot of other dancers who've come into the company at that time, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I just, it felt so familiar to me that I, it, it wasn't that foreign. Having worked with Stanley sort of over the years, and when I was in New York with the Harkness Valley, Mrs. Glebuff was always very nice to me. And she said, you know, yes, you can come and take classes if you want. So I took, comp- you know, not company, I took a men's class you know, fairly frequently when I was in New York with, with Stanley. So it, it's coming to join the company. It wasn't that foreign to me, you know, that was it. What were some of the first pieces that you were assigned to dance in the company? The very first piece I danced was uh, Symphony C, uh, Third Moment, up in uh, Saratoga. And um, it's a funny story because, as you know, Balanchine, well, you might not know, but Balanchine always stood on the other side of the stage. Uh, that was his place by the, by the stage manager. But that particular day, he decided to stand in the fr- front wing on the side I, I come in, you know, in third moment. And I think he had his way of testing dancers, you know, what they were made of. Were they rattle? Could they handle the pressure or whatever? So there he was in my first performance with the company, standing right in the fr- front wing where I had to come in running in and do the big preparation for the jump. Not only that, he stuck his foot out. Am I gonna hit him? Am I gonna trip? Am I... So I have, in my preparation, in the train, I had to jump over his foot. He really leaned out and stuck his foot. He was just testing me, you know, can you handle this pressure? And that was his way with, with dancers because if they couldn't take the pressure, he was not gonna waste his time. And I understand that so, so well now as, as a director of the company. But I guess I passed the test and, and uh, I got a lot of other ballets to dance after that. Early on in your time in the company, Jerome Robbins choreographed his epic ballet to the Goldberg Variations, and you played such an important role in that. And could you share with us a little bit about the creation of that piece? Well, with Harkness, we were doing um, one of his ballets, Opus Jazz, 
New York's Opus Jazz. And he had come to uh, rehearsal sometimes. And we, uh, as a company, we had gone to uh, Butler University in Indianapolis, I think it is, you know, sort of do some performances there, try out before New York season of the, of the Harkins Valley. And Jerry came there. And after one of the rehearsals, he said, can you stay? I, I want to try some things. So he had me trying out lots of different steps. And a lot of those steps ended up in Goldberg variation. Um, not in particular what I did, but one of the, that Ricky Wise did, that fast variation. Um, but he wanted to see how it would look on a, on a dancer and if it worked. You know? so, so my first experience with Goldberg was not in New York City Ballet, but was, and when I joined the company, um, his point was something like, well, uh, I'm finally, you're finally here because I, I'm going to use you in the Goldberg. turned out that Jerry was extremely apparently influential in bringing me to New York City Ballet. Because before I went to Moscow and I danced solo from, very, you know, from a dance at a gathering, he had me come to the theater one afternoon when no one was rehearsing anymore. It was like five o'clock in the afternoon. He had the stage. He sat out in the audience and he had me dance the variation. He wanted to see how I was gonna do. And there was a gentleman sitting with next to him, which turned out to be Lincoln Kirsten. And I guess Jerry said, you know, this dancer should be in this company. So when I was in Barcelona and the company Harkness folded and I got his telegram, I guess it was Jerry that had influenced Balanchine to take a look at me. Which I later found out that Balanchine had seen me dance somewhere, I don't know where, and had, was, was very impressed. That's what I was told by this person who was with him in that performance or singing dance. So in a way, he sort of, Jerry became my mentor. You know, he always looked after me and make sure that I was okay and, and indirectly. Even when I came to, uh, as a director in San Francisco Ballet, I guess the search committee had contacted him and Lincoln because Lou Christensen had danced the New York City Ballet. And so uh, Lincoln knew Lou very well. And when Lou was looking and Lincoln had said, there's only one person, it's Elgi, to get him. And when they asked Jerry, it, it, Lou's wife told me this later after I'd been here a few years, that, that Jerry Robbins had said the same thing. He said, you're wasting your time if you're not taking Helgi. So he was your advocate. So, you know, I had fantastic people there behind me, not knowing anything about what they had said or what they had recommended. But that was sort of typical Jerry. He was always somewhere behind the, the scenes, keeping an eye at how I was doing. And, and, and actually when I was gonna to go to Copenhagen to direct that company, he advised me not to do it. No one will know what you're doing there, it's too far away. Stay in this company. Yeah, yeah. Are there any particular memories you have from the choreographic process of Goldberg or the performances of Goldberg? No, I just, it, it, sort of, it was an epic thing for, for Jerry. I think um, 
I always looked at it as, as it was sort of Jerry's encyclopedia of his classical vocabulary. I think it was a wonderful ballet. I, I love dancing it. Um, but of course, as dancers, we, <laughs> we were kind of a little bit annoyed when in Saratoga, when we started dancing it there, that he would announce to the audience, please do not applaud until the end of the performance. So, you know, there you finish a variation of Potter and there was absolute dead silence. And I don't know what, what got into his head. He wanted that. And, uh, you know, you're out there killing yourself. and <laughs> You feel nobody's appreciating anything you're doing. <laughs> but no, it was, it was, I enjoyed dancing the ballet, I must say. Mm-hmm. And from one epic thing to another, the next year, Mr. Balanchine curated his landmark week-long festival to celebrate his beloved friend and collaborator, Igor Stravinsky, who passed away the year before. And for the festival... Mr. Balanchine choreographed several new works, and Robbins choreographed, Todd Bollander choreographed, Lorca Messine, Richard Tanner, John Terrace, all these people to make it a huge celebration of Stravinsky. And you were integral to several of the, the lasting ballets from that festival, including Symphony in Three Movements and the Divertimento from Le Baiser de la Fée. And I would just love to hear your memories from that week because the City Ballet is commemorating it this season. Well, uh, Symphony Three Movements was uh, sort of not easy for me because it was Stravinsky music and I had never in my career danced anything to Stravinsky. It was challenging for me and he had me do the beginning of the first movement with all the ladies lining up on the long diagonal line and coming in. And for some reason, I, I don't know if it's just me or, or Mr. B, he just, he choreographed it and no, he didn't like that. So he changed it and he changed it again. He changed it several times. And, you know, in the end, I just thought, my God, it's me. Maybe I'm just wrong for this or whatever. It turned out, no, that's not the issue, but this, he, he didn't, couldn't find it, which was unusual for him. But in the end, I enjoyed it because I, I really got to, how can I appreciate Stravinsky's music? And, and um, it was a one incredible festival. Absolutely incredible festival. Say um, it was one of the first ballets he choreographed for the for the festival. And when he choreographed it, Patty McBride and I, we only had the part of the she had a very nice solo. I didn't disappoint it, but you know, that's how he saw it, and you know, I was not gonna question that. And then one day I was I had bought some tickets to see ballet theater across the plaza and uh, with my wife, and I uh, I was called to rehearsal like at 5.30 or six o'clock at, at night. And uh, Gordon Balsner, who was the pianist, I said, what's going on? And you know, it just said Thomas and, balancing Thomas and Balsner, you know, and I thought, um, and he said, I think 
Balance, he might have found some music. You might be surprised. So we went up in the main studio upstairs and uh, he said, I found some music that I had used when I did say the first time years and years earlier. He said, let's see what I, we can do. So he started and I, I tried to follow what he did. And then he said, well, then do this and do that. Don't do this, keep going. What about doing something like that? And he wouldn't, he couldn't show me, but he would indicate what he wanted. And an hour and 20 minutes later, the solo was done. And he said, take a break, think about it, and let's do it from the beginning to the end. And I even had a hard time remembering everything. So I said, you know, I need the 10 minutes. And I said, okay, let's, let's, let's see it. He said, it's in a typical way, and so let's see it. And I did the solo, everything he had told me to do. And, and he just said, good, you work on it. Good, very good. Next time he saw it was the day before the opening. I was on stage. And he said, okay, let's see what you've done with it. And I had practice, of course. And yeah, very good, very good. And the next day was the premiere and that was it. Could you describe some of the, the nuances of the solo to us? What you felt made it special? At the time, it was so unusual for me. You know, it was not a, a typical solo, uh, let's say from, from uh, Ramonda Variations or anything like that. I ran over to the theater, ballet theater, just made it before curtain and, and my wife is sitting there and she said, so what happened? I said, well, he did a solo for me. What is it like? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know because it's so different. And uh, I can't see myself, you know, I, I can't judge it from that. So, but he seemed to be very pleased with it. And, you know, I, I will do the best I can with it. This is how the writer Nancy Goldner described Helgi's solo. The solo balancing made for Helgi Thomason is extraordinarily beautiful and strange full of twists and turns, mysterious pauses, poetic suggestions. It begins academically. Thomason simply moves one leg sideways, brings it back to the original fifth position, points the other leg, brings it back, and so on. Each time he moves his leg, his body assumes a different angle. This sequence is done so skimmingly that you're not aware of transitional moments when the body adjusts itself for the next angle. Yet within a few seconds, you have seen Thomason's body from more points of view than one knew existed. Although the rest of the solo enlarges into leaps and turns, it never becomes a virtuoso display. This is one of its most unusual aspects. Rather, leaps and turns are used to show Thomason's quicksilver flexibility and how a common step may look novel when performed in unusual sequence or from an off-balance position. For example, he pirouettes and ends on a bent knee. Then he pirouettes again, starting on a bent knee and ending in an uplifted arabesque. It is like watching a top resume its revolutions in full force after a few faltering ones. When turning with his leg in attitude, his body and head lean in the direction exactly opposite the norm. The effect is a subtle misalignment between weight pressure and line of direction. One knows something is not quite right, but what is it? The solo emits the tension of uncertainty as when the stage darkens before something happens. Balanchine and Stravinsky take you to the brink of event. The choreography becomes more febrile and unpredictable, and the music becomes more pressing and anticipatory. 
Then suddenly there's a break. Thomason reaches high into the air as though he has just seen a vision or thought one. He runs, jumps, falls to the ground on one knee and pauses, runs again, jumps, falls and pauses, and once again. What is happening? What does happen is that the fourth run, jump, fall takes Thomas into the wing. He rises, reaches into the air, and disappears from view, leaving behind a suggestion of some momentous internal adventure. As I started working on it, I, I think I realized how incredible that solo was. And uh, someone had written somewhere, I don't know who did and when it was, that this was the best male solo he had ever choreographed for a male dancer. So that was, that was very flattering and wonderful. It's in the souvenir book of the 72 Festival. Nancy Goldner wrote, The divertimento from Le Baiser de la Fée is Balanchine's gift to Helgi Thomason. Balanchine has bestowed gifts upon beautiful dancers many times, but rarely a male. The recipient of Balanchine's devotion is always able to rediscover his talent, becoming a new and greater dancer. Yeah. I mean, that he, he gave gifts to dancers, and he had that incredible ability to to see what your strengths and weaknesses were and, and use it accordingly. So I think I'm, I'm very fortunate to have received that gift, yes. Mm. And he also made roles for you in Vienna Waltzes, and then Mr. Robbins choreographed on you in the Dybbuk variations. What was, what was some of the comparing and contrasting of originating roles in Robbins and Balanchine Ballets through the rest of your time in the company? Uh, I really, truly enjoyed dancing both styles, if I can put it that way. They were so different. Uh, the choreographic process I found with, with, Rob, with Balanchine, except for that symphony in three moments at the beginning, usually the first thing he showed you was what he ended up with. You know, it was like he was not giving you two or three different versions of the thing. He would just go, that's what it is, and it seemed to be the, absolutely the right thing. With Mr. Robbins, it was more that... He would uh, not always be sure and say, "Well, no." I, the next day, he would change it. And I remember that there was something in, in the, it might have been with Dibbuck, that he kept changing it and changing it, not sure what if it was what the right thing for him. And um, I don't know what it was. I seem to have a ability to retain. So he would say to me, "Do that third version I did, you know, the day before yesterday or whatever," and I would remember it. Or show me the fifth version I did of that same music. And when he tried that with other dancers, they couldn't remember, he would get very upset. You know, he expected so much from everybody. But, so that process was different always with him. But very often it was the closest to his first instinct was, was in my, my experience. And... You danced with the company till January of 1985, and you chose to retire from the stage with a performance of Le Baiser de la Fée. Why did you choose that as your final piece, and what are your memories from that final performance? Well, first of all, I think that same night they were supposed to dance the ballet I had choreographed there. I think it was Minuetto. And I thought that would be a good day, you know, one of my work that I choreographed for the company, and 
and basically it was a great, wonderful solo of dancing with Patty McBride that I ended up dancing with more than any, any of the other ballerinas. And you know, I just knew there was time and I, I wanted to do this. Something happened. I think somebody got sick or injured. So they, uh, my ballet did not go that night. But you know, I danced bass A and, and I thought that's a wonderful way to, to have my last performance was something was created on me and then the, I'm honoring Balanchine by doing that. And then, yeah, that, that's, that was my choice. There's a wonderful line in the review from that retirement performance where it says, Mr. Thomason leaves the company with the modesty and dignity that have always marked his eloquent dancing. So I thought that was just very beautiful. And at that point, you had already begun choreographing. And how did you first become interested in choreography? And then how did that then relate to your transition from performing to then becoming artistic director in San Francisco? Well, it's when I was with Harkness, I was approached to do a television pilot for ABC. It was something that they wanted me to dance a solo. And uh, it had um, the famous opera singer, uh, Richard Tucker, was singing this song that I was supposed to dance to. And we were supposed to film it in Toronto, Canada. And they said, fine, I will do that. Of course, who's choreographing it? And they said, no, no, you are choreographing it. I said, I've never choreographed anything. Well, you must be able to do something. So I choreographed a solo for myself. And that, that was my first, how can I say, inkling of, of putting steps together. Later on, I think it must have sparked something in me that, I, uh, that was fascinating, that I, I was interested in doing that. Being in New York City Ballet with Balanchine and Robbins choreographing constantly, I just felt, who am I? What am I gonna say? You know, with those two geniuses, you know, that's so intimidating even to try to do something there. So I, I sort of put it aside. And it was my wife that said to me, you know, if, if you're interested in, in doing that, um, you better get going. So I, I went to Mr. B and I said, well, um, really, I have this music, I would like to do something. And and uh, he was sort of, yeah, why? And you know, we talked about that. And it was uh, music to uh, Moro Giuliani, which is a, a, a guitar. And I thought that would be a good thing to start with, you know. And he said, well, maybe we could have it reorchestrated. And he tried to have it reorchestrated for the violin. But it turned out uh, he called somebody he knew and, and it was very difficult. But anyway, he said, go ahead and you can go to the school uh, for the, you know, the school performance, you get the, the best the best students and you will learn enormously from that. So uh, I did that and I, I choreographed that piece and he came to a rehearsal one day and, and saw it. He sat there quiet and say a word and I thought, oh my God, you know, this, this is a disaster. And I finally, they finished the piece and, and he sat there and there was a long silence and I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I said, Mr. B, please say something, you know. And he said, all he said was, hmm, yeah, rethink the first movement. And then he left. And my experience had been that he always was very influenced of and equal to tell other choreographers what to do when they were choreographing for New York City Ballet. That's what I've always heard. So I tried to re-approach that first movement and uh, 
do something different with it and better and asked him to come back and he came back and he said oh that's much better and he left didn't say anything more after the performance the day after i'm coming into the theater and i'm walking across the stage with that one light bulb on the stage and he happened to be coming from the opposite direction and i sort of typical mr balancing and i bowed how are you good morning whatever it was and he stopped and he said ah now you understand he said now you understand choreography just keep going wow okay that was a fantastic compliment um, then we went to Saratoga and I wanted to do something else again. I was hoping to do something for the, for the company, of course, you know, big ambitions. And I spoke to him and he said, he gave me music, which was typical of him, do something to this. You know, this is a wonderful composer, you know, do something. And I tried and I listened, I tried and I, I couldn't come up with that. So I, I said to Barbara Houghton, I have to speak to Mr. B. He was not, his health was failing at that time. And she said, well, you can call him. So I called him and with much uh, <laughs> trepidation, I said to Mr. B, with all due respect, the music you have given me to, to choreograph to, is music that you have, the composer you have used a lot. And all I see is your choreography. I can't come up with anything else, but I have this composer that I would like to use. And he said, who is it? And, and I said, it's so-and-so. That was the second ballet I did for the New York City Ballet. And he said, oh, that's the most underrated ballet composer. Plus, absolutely use it. And then he went to give me the biggest compliment he, had, he ever gave to me. He said, don't ever let anybody tell you what music to use when you choreograph. Wow, you know, I was sweating bullets with talking to him about this. And that's how it started. And then we talked again uh, later on. He said to me, uh, that was in Saratoga. He was staying at the house. He was not well. He, uh, he had wanted to speak to me. And he said, you can move people around. You can choreograph with groups. Most people can't. Most people can do maybe a part of it. But moving people around, that makes it difficult. And you can do that. I can see that. Then he said, maybe you should work more on adagios you know maybe you should try to you know do better in that but you move people around without a question that's that's good you do that very very well so that was it yeah. and then you were off to the races as a choreographer yeah. and now you've done over 50 ballets and many of them for your san francisco ballet and what was you've alluded it to a little bit before but what was that transition and and your beginnings as artistic director of san francisco ballet back in 85 well that was difficult because you know i danced up to one week before one week after i stopped dancing i was named artist, artistic director and here i had a company uh, of about 40 some dancers and um, i have had always been on the other end of the studio waiting for the choreographer to tell me what to do. And then all of a sudden I'm standing on the other end of the studio telling people what to do and people I didn't really know that well. And uh, it took some time, it was not easy. And also directing the company at the same time which I had no experience in. But there were times I said to myself, balancing was so logical, what would he do in this instant? What would he, what would he think? And that, that was sort of helpful to think of it that, in that way. And um, 
little by little, you know, it, here I am 37 years later. And what were some of your first priorities as an artistic director that you wanted to establish with the company there in San Francisco? Um, it, it was the company itself was a, a good regional company. There's no question about that. But one of the things that I was asked by the board of directors when they interviewed me is, can you make this not only a, a national, but international company? That's what we want. And not knowing anything better, I said, yes, I can. So that was what I had to do when I, I brought in choreographers from outside. I felt there was too much in-house going on. We needed to, uh, I was re referred to as open up windows and let some fresh air in and try different things. And how did Balanchine's example shape you as an artistic director in terms of programming or casting or the pacing and development of dancers? Uh, he influenced me in, in the sense of, you know, I taught classes right away, you know, like four or five times a week, just to make them understand how I wanted to, to move and, and what I emphasized and what articulation, musicality. So that was an influence for Balanchine extension. Uh, I put ladies in point shoes in class, which was not done. You know, I said that you have to have that to make it look natural, uh, that it's part of your, your foot. It's not something you just put on before you do a performance. So I think in that way, that was that influence from him. Uh, as directing what I did, like I said earlier, was probably more from Joffrey, having experienced all those different styles of, of dancing. And, uh, you know, the company, when I took over, had danced quite a bit of balance and ballets because of Lou connection with New York City ballets. I just felt when coming straight from the company, um, New York City Ballet, into to San Francisco Ballet, I felt that they didn't dance it as I had been accustomed to in New York City Ballet. The speed was slower. It was not always, the musicality wasn't always there that he emphasized. So I tried to correct all that and, and, and make it, when we dance balancing, that it would be danced the way I think he would have liked it to be danced. And I had a question for you too, Mr. Thomason, because when I think back to the Stravinsky Festival, from having read about it and talked to different people who were there, it was like this huge creative outburst and all of these choreographers working at once and all rallied around the idea of new choreography and celebrating music and all of that. And I feel like in your leadership in San Francisco, you've carried on the spirit of the Stravinsky Festival as you've curated a series of festivals through the years, the 1995 festival commemorating the United Nations charter with the different companies around the world, and then your festival of new works in 2008, and then the Unbound Festival, and then next year with the 90th anniversary, you have such a, such a commitment to the development of choreographers. Could you talk about that and why you've picked the people you've picked? Well, first of all, it was the influence is also from Balanchine and he created festival, Stravinsky, Ravel, uh, you know, and they, they serve a great purpose, not only in it's just creative juices that flow from bringing choreographers and, and together, but I think it also, from an audience point of view, you know, it makes, it makes a big buzz in, in, the, in the theater, something new, something different. Not that they don't like the, the everyday normal things, but it's, I think it's necessary for an audience sometimes to feel that this is something really special and you know they will come and buy tickets. So I think 
yes, it, it's a definite influence on that. But also don't forget, Joffrey brought in all those different choreographers when I was there. So it, there is a, a indirect connection, a creative connection. And that's what I experienced as a young dancer starting out with Robert Joffrey. It continued with Harkness. He brought in a lot of choreographers. And then I end up in New York City Ballet with Balanchine Robbins, the ultimate choreographers at that time, um, doing new works and festivals. So it, it just can't be helped that this has shaped me and influenced me as an artistic director. One of my last questions is, throughout your dancing career and then in both your choreography and directorship, many have commented on your commitment to ballet's classical tradition. And how would you define classicism in ballet? What does it mean to you? And then where do you see the art form now in, in dialogue with that idea of classicism? I think classical ballet, it combines music and beauty of movement. And I feel we need more of that in today's world. With all the difficulties in the world and pandemics and wars and everything else, we, we need that beauty. And classical ballet can provide that. Mm. Classical ballet, you know, I'm not talking about just only Swan Lake or Giselle. I'm talking about Balanchine's, call it neoclassical or whatever, or Robbins. They, they use the vocabulary of classical, the classical vocabulary, and they created some beautiful works. And that is something that I feel that I would love to see continue. It's getting more and more difficult to find choreographers who will take the chance to create in that mode. Things have become much more influenced by, uh, how can I say, speed of, uh, of the music that is demanding speed, uh, using the floor a lot more, being on the floor, not as on your feet, but on, on the floor, on the body rolling on the floor and things like that. And there are things that can be interesting, absolutely. I'm not you know, saying they can't be, but it's easier, I think, to choreograph something in that genre uh, because you can do anything you want, anything goes. With the classical vocabulary, you are still restricted to use your brain to how, to, how can I use this vocabulary and still create something that is, looks different it's beautiful. It touches the audience. Yeah, I think that's, that's to me is the ultimate classical ballet. I mean, look at Serenade. We are still thinking that's, you know, it's timeless. And I'm just naming one of his, his many, many timeless pieces. And we have a lot of new works created uh, and some work and some will not, you know. But that's what I feel we have to do. We have to continue to explore and there may be some, some of those works will become more than just one occasion work and have maybe a, a long life, but we can't stop not exploring because then we just stand still. In that quote I read from your retirement performance from dancing, it said you left the company with the modesty and dignity that have always marked your eloquent dancing. And it's probably wild for you to be thinking about it, but in just a few weeks, you'll be leaving another company with modesty and dignity that you have marked with your eloquent leadership. And what, what are some of your thoughts here as you're drawing into the final months of your tenure as artistic director of San Francisco Ballet, looking back and also looking forward for that particular company? 
Well, I think I've, I've accomplished everything I set out to do here. Uh, and maybe that's why I feel it's time to give it over to someone else. Like I said earlier, I was asked to make this a national international company. It has become that. It's known for its creative process. It's, it's known for its excellent dancing, musicality, uh, freedom of movement, you know. What more can I ask for? I think it's, it's that's quite something. And I'm, I'm thrilled and, and, and grateful that I was giving the permission to do it and, and support of the board of, of, of San Francisco Ballet to continue to support my artistic vision. Yeah, and like I said, I have, I have accomplished everything I set out to do. And uh, I'm very proud of what the company stands for and, 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 and how it dances. And it was while you were dancing with Joffrey that you met your wife, Marlene. And could you maybe say a word about what it's meant to share this whole long journey of ballet with her and with your family? It's been fantastic because she was, she was a wonderful dancer. She was one of those dancers that just light up the stage and the audience loved her. I think being the artistic director here, she fully understood my work and my, my difficulty and frustrations and successes and whatever. And she has been an incredible, incredible help to me. Uh, I don't think I would have made it without her. But anyway, I think together, I think we made a fantastic company. Oh, my gosh. It's so beautiful. Mr. Thomason, thank you so much for your time and for your insight and for your devotion to the beauty of ballet through all these years. And I just, I just wish you all the best with these last months in San Francisco. And I hope it's just a glorious finish of a, of a long and beautiful career that you've had. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Okay, take care. Absolutely. Wishing you all the best. Hoping to get to visit with you again sometime soon. To learn more about Helgi Thomason, the Joffrey Ballet, the San Francisco Ballet, the Stravinsky Festival, and the ballets discussed, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance. Thank you.